wouldn't miss this for anything. Okay. Our scripture, oh, that's the wrong one again. Let's see. Here it is. Um, our scripture today is 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. Please pray with me. The power of your... Lord, open our minds and our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scripture is read and your word proclaimed, we may understand and apply the message you have for us today. Amen. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Concentrate, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
I just want to say a welcome again to Pierre and Natalie and, and their family. Uh, uh, we, when I was a student at Geneva in the mid-2000s, it uh, was also when they were uh, in our community here. And Lynn and I uh, had the opportunity to be at their wedding 16 years ago. And it's just so good to see you again. And welcome. We, we also shared a, a good friend, Alec, uh, Alec Johnson, who's a friend of many of ours here in Geneva. And um, it's just it's, we're, we're blessed that you're here and can share today. Uh, in his book, The Life We're Looking For, the, the author Andy Crouch tells a story of a memorable and moving spiritual experience he had uh, in the Chicago O'Hare Airport, of all places. He was traveling and had a long layover with almost two hours to kill, and stuck within the secure area of the airport, he would normally hunker down and, and stare into his phone, as, as people do. But he realized that he had not had a, a proper walk or, or really any exercise uh, for several days. And because all the terminals of O'Hare are connected, it occurred to him that he could walk for several miles through all of them. And as he started walking, he thought about a, a scripture passage he'd been working on about the description of human beings in the Bible as being made in the image of God. And passing people, he began to try and take note of each person and say to himself, as he saw each one, image bearer. He says, I passed a weary looking man in a suit, image bearer. Right behind him was a woman in a sari, image bearer. A mother pushed a stroller with a young baby. A young man, presumably the baby's father, walked next to her, half holding, half dragging a toddler by the hand. Image bearer, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. A ramp worker walked by in a bulky coat and safety vest. Image bearer. And so he went on through concourse E, F, G, H, K, L. Image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. And by the time he'd walked from one end of, of the airport to the other, he had passed hundreds and hundreds of people. He says, by the end of my walk, I was overwhelmed in a way I had not expected. I had passed people in every stage of life and health, of an uncountable number of national and ethnic backgrounds, some traveling together, most seemingly alone. The stories I would never learn behind each of those faces the years of life that had shaped their posture and gait, the possibility and futility each one had known and would know, all set to the relentless soundtrack of those two words, image bearer. This carried an emotional and speed this exercise on a city street or in a coffee shop, even driving on the highway, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. It never fails to move me and still me. Through this exercise, Crouch began to see people around him in a whole new way. Our text today is all about seeing. You may not realize it, but the key word to see shows up already in verse 1, when God tells Samuel, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Literally, the Hebrew says, I have seen for myself a king among his sons. And this word to see is picked up again 
Later, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Man sees the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Really, this is a story about what God sees. And we're brought along with Samuel in learning to see as God sees. So what does this mean? Now let's begin with what Samuel sees. Because as we've said, you know, a lot of this story is about coming alongside Samuel and learning to see. When God first comes to Samuel to tell him to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king in Saul's place, you know, God could have been more specific. He only tells Samuel that it's one of the sons of Jesse. He doesn't tell him which one. You know, he could, have, he could have done that and saved Samuel a lot of trouble. But he doesn't, and not just because it makes for a better story, though it does, but because God's goal here is not just to get the job done. There's more happening than uh, just getting David anointed. The point is to teach Samuel and us uh, about how God sees his king. So Samuel travels to Bethlehem. He gathers Jesse and his sons. And when he sees Eliab, he is so impressed, and he thinks, this is the guy. Eliab is the eldest son. He's handsome, he's tall, he's strong. And the Lord must tell Samuel, no. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You might wonder why this was such a hard lesson for the prophet Samuel to learn. Last week we saw that Saul was also someone who looked the part of a king. He was also described as the tallest and most handsome man in all of Israel. And yet things had not turned out well with Saul. He did not do what God had commanded. He was successful in battle, but he claimed the victory for himself rather than for God. Shouldn't Samuel have already learned what God was looking for? This shows how challenging it can be for our vision to be changed, to see in a new way. Men like Saul and Eliab were so attractive to Samuel for good reasons. Israel uh, was a relatively small people beset by nations around them uh, who uh, were out to destroy them. 1 Samuel 14, uh, verses 47 to 48, says this about Saul's rule. Uh, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Saul had his problems as a king, as, we, as we've seen, but he was a mighty warrior, and he was pretty good at it. Samuel expects that if Saul is going to be replaced, that he will be replaced with someone who at least has his capabilities as a military leader or the makings of such a leader. This was just a matter of, of survival for the people. 
Here in Madison, we don't typically have to prioritize military prowess and strength in our leaders. Your potential is not evaluated based on your height or your looks, which is good news for me. There might be some you know, sport contexts where we still care about these things, but, but they're the exception, not the rule. What matters to us are other characteristics that can also be measured. If you're applying for a job at, at Epic or, or another tech company, let's say, the, the very first thing you must do is take a cognitive aptitude test. Whether or not you get an invitation to an interview will totally depend on the results of that test before you've seen anyone at all. Now for us, the outward appearance is measured differently, but it's still measured, isn't it? But both are superficial compared to what the Bible says God looks at. The Lord looks on the heart. The heart in the Hebrew Bible is not about your emotions, like we sometimes talk about a person who has a lot of heart. The heart in the Bible is, is the core of a person's being, the, the center of their intellectual, ethical, moral, and religious life. Everything that makes you who you are is the heart. And this is what God looks on, not at what an ancient warrior might look for as valuable, not what a modern corporate manager might look for as valuable, not what is esteemed by your professor or maybe your parents. These things all have their place and they serve useful purposes, but they are only the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. Now let's talk about what this means. After Eliab, uh, each of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel, and none of them are chosen by the Lord. And when Samuel has seen all seven of them and not found the one that the Lord wants, he wonders, has he missed someone? Are all your sons here? And it turns out there is one left, the, the youngest, keeping the sheep. He was so unimportant that they didn't even call him to this feast to introduce him to the prophet. The Jewish literary scholar Robert Alter comments, by his sheer youth, David has been excluded from consideration as a kind of male Cinderella, left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. But Samuel insists, there will be no feasting until they bring David. And when he comes, notice what happens in verse 12. And he, Jesse, sent and, and brought him in now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Two things about this scene. Uh, first, uh, notice it's clear that this is the Lord's choice uh, for king. Earlier when Eliab appeared, uh, we heard Samuel passing judgment, first saying, you know, this must be the Lord's anointed. And God has to tell him no. Uh, but in verse 12, when David appears, uh, we don't hear Samuel's judgment. We hear God's. This is he. God is the primary agent here. He sees, he chooses, and, and later he empowers. But secondly, at the same time, 
we're told something about David's appearance. He was ruddy. Uh, the NIV says he was glowing with health. Uh, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. Now, this seems really strange, doesn't it? And we heard earlier that it's man who looks on the outward appearance. Then why does it matter what David looks like? Why does the author tell us this? This is a good opportunity to think about how we're supposed to read these Old Testament stories. You know, when you come across a, an apparent contradiction like this, it can be tempting to, to quickly dismiss it, uh, to move too fast over this kind of discrepancy. You might think that these old biblical writers just weren't paying close attention themselves, or, or they needed a better editor. But if instead we assume that the, the writers of Scripture were sophisticated and intentional about what they were saying, like the authors of any great literature, we find that a profound point is being made. The author knows what God has just said about appearances, and he intentionally highlights David's appearance in order to tell us something. Just as Eliab is not chosen simply because he looks like a king, David isn't dismissed because he is attractive either. God is not choosing David because he's strong and powerful, but neither is God choosing David because he's not strong and powerful. What's on the outside? whether it's appealing according to one set of cultural standards or another, is not what will determine God's choice for king. If nothing was said about David's appearance, or if he was just described as the opposite of Eliab or Saul, then we might conclude that the Lord is just looking for a different skill set. You know, maybe a software engineer or a, a college professor, rather than a warrior. You see what this means? Throughout the Bible, we're told that God does not align himself with those who have cultural capital of any sort, the strong, the powerful, the rich. We heard Hannah in chapter one of 1 Samuel, or chapter two of 1 Samuel say, God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. But this doesn't mean that we can go to the other extreme and say, uh, that God prefers the poor and the oppressed because they are not rich and powerful. If God looks at the heart, you can be attractive in the world's eyes and still be spiritually poor and weak, or you can be despised in the world's eyes and still be spiritually poor and weak. If your circumstances or your achievements or your identity uh, is not valued by others, you may feel that you're worthless and significant because you're not measuring up uh, to the predominant standard. And this can lead to, to self-hatred and depression if you internalize those opinions of others. Or it can lead to anger and bitterness if you decide that you must prove others wrong at all costs. But the story of David offers us another possibility. The anointing of David teaches us not to find our identity and value in what our culture affirms or in our rebellion against what our culture affirms. If you fit into the mold of cultural expectations, like Saul uh, or like Eliab, you might 
become prideful and self-centered and look down on others who don't share your genetics or your background or your privileges. If you don't fit into the mold and you decide that you don't want to and you find a community of people who will affirm you and your uniqueness, this can also be a way of looking down on others who don't share your willingness to go out on your own and reject the mainstream. Either way, whether you embrace society's expectations or you reject them, this leaves it up to you to define what is meaningful for yourself. Both of these leave you in a position of tremendous pressure and anxiety because it all depends on you. Your identity and your meaning depend on what you can achieve and accomplish. Look at David. David was completely unaware of God's plans for him. And yet God sees him out tending the sheep. God chooses him. And as the story ends, God empowers him uh, with his spirit. Without David speaking a word. This is profound. This is a story about David but David is not the main actor in his story. God is. We know from the, the rest of the story that David is not perfect, far from it, and we will get in this series to his very real and serious failures. But when God looks at his heart, uh, he doesn't see perfect righteousness in him. But the life of faith that, that David will exhibit begins here with God anointing him, the youngest child, the sheep herder who's done nothing to achieve his status as king. In the Lord's judgment, this is exactly what he is looking for in a king. Not someone who can boast of greatness, uh, who can assume that they have what it takes, but someone who trusts in God's purposes despite their weakness. In God's kingdom, it's not that the successful and strong are in and the sinners and the failures are out, but that the humble are in and the proud are out. Let me offer an illustration. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, you'll remember that the central plot is about the need to destroy the one ring created by the evil wizard Sauron that has the power to rule all the creatures of Middle-earth. Uh, the men, the dwarves, the elves, and after the ring is discovered, someone must be chosen to carry it to the fires of Mount Doom to destroy it forever. Who would you expect to be chosen uh, for such a mighty quest? Will it be a strong dwarf? A wise elf? A powerful human being? But none of these can take the ring. Tolkien has to create a whole new race to, to communicate what he wants to say here. To everyone's surprise, it's a hobbit who offers to take the ring to Mount Doom. The hobbits are the weakest and most insignificant of the peoples of Middle-earth. This idea that only the weak can destroy the power of evil is a deeply Christian idea woven into the book. So Frodo takes the ring, and he sets out to Mordor with his friend Sam Gamgee, 
And for me, one of the most important moments in the whole story comes near the end, when Frodo himself becomes overwhelmed by this burden, the, the burden of the ring. He cannot give the ring to anyone else. But Sam, who is a servant always, is willing to lift Frodo on his back and carry him up Mount Doom. He says to Frodo, Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. It turns out that even Frodo needs the help of a hobbit who's weaker than himself to destroy the ring of power. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us when we place our faith and our trust in him. Now, he is the king who makes himself weak to carry us. Christianity is not a religion for those who are good and moral and do what is right. Christianity is for those who know that they are weak and lost and need a savior. Anything else is looking only on the outward appearances and not on the heart. When we see the heart, we know that no one is moral enough to make themselves worthy, that none of us have the strength to destroy the power of evil in our lives or in our world. G.K. Chesterton uh, was an English writer and literary critic who was once asked by a newspaper to answer the question, What's wrong with the world? And he wrote a very brief reply in response. Dear sirs, I am, sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> when you know your own heart, that's the kind of humility that you will have. Not always looking out into the world to blame others for what's wrong, but confessing first your own complicity in the world's suffering and sin. The Lord looks on the heart means that God sees all of us as we really are down to the core. He knows our pride and fear. He knows our secret sins. He knows all the ways that we pretend and we perform to maintain a certain appearance before others. The invitation of God's grace for you today is to give up on appearances and all the ways that you feel you must earn your place, that you must put on a show, and instead trust that God sees you and God loves you. If he called David from tending the sheep, then he can call you whatever condition you find yourself in today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. If Jesus is the Son of God, then no one is more powerful than him. And if Jesus died on the cross, then no one has become weak like he has. He's like Sam Gamgee carrying us on his back through the hell of Mordor, defining success. If Christ is your righteousness, then your standing in the world is no longer something you must achieve. It's a gift that you receive from him. 
if Christ is your sanctification, then your goal is not a legalistic holiness, but a growing intimacy with Jesus, learning to love what he loves. And if Christ is your redemption, then he's given himself in your place in order to set you free. If he is the new and greater David who makes his power perfect in weakness, then you can trust him with your life. This is the one who says to you today, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we do give you thanks uh, for uh, your great story of love and redemption, uh, restoration uh, of your people and of this world. And we give ourselves to you today, coming to you uh, with an open confession of our need and of our weakness, knowing that you meet us, not after we've cleaned ourselves up or uh, exercised and shown some great strength, but that you meet us already by reaching down and then entering into our condition and our weakness and our need for your grace. So thank you for meeting us here today and at your table and strengthen us uh, that we might love as you love and give as you give. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.